Is vertical farming to be regarded as an opportunity or a threat? Is it going to revolutionise the food system and feed people and put all the farmers out of business? No, it's not. What is it? At its simplest, vertical farming is using technology to grow crops indoors uh, at an increased efficiency. How does it work? Can anybody do it? Does it cost a fortune or could I make a fortune? Dr Michael Dent from iTechX joins us with some answers in a few minutes. And was it the greatest online agricultural show? Should summer show organisers feel threatened? This is all set up to honour the shows and to, to bring a bit of the fun that was being missed out upon through them being cancelled. Organiser David Hill has a post-show update for us and, of course, Sean and Kit will be here with agronomy and a look at the markets. The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Welcome once again. I'm Steve Orchard. Hope you've had a good week. Nice and sunny, perhaps a bit on the dry side. Uh, the headlines this week. Avara Foods has announced the closure of its caster-based duck business. The business has been under pressure for some time and it suffered due to Brexit uncertainties and the closure of the food service sector as a result of COVID-19. Around 300 individuals are affected. The CLAs welcomed an announcement this week that dairy farmers will be able to access up to £10,000 each from the government to overcome the impact of the coronavirus outbreak. But they say more may be needed. Details of the Hardship Fund can be found online at gov.uk. Search farming and food grants and payments. And First Milk is holding its standard and manufacturing milk prices at 26.75 and 27.63 pence per litre, respectively. And recently we reported on the increase in fly-tipping incidents in the countryside. Some good news is that new guidance has been published on how recycling centres can be safely reopened. Councils are being encouraged to get centres back open, most likely through the use of pre-booked time slots. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago we spoke with David Hill, who was concerned, as we all are, with the disappearance of the summer agricultural shows this year. So he decided to create the greatest online agricultural show. No lack of ambition. And the virtual show took place last weekend, and now it's all been and gone, and the dust settled. David's on the line with an update. Morning, David. How did it all go then? Uh, well, it was, um, yeah, it was really good. I think... Um it was clear that everyone enjoyed it. Um, I mean, as with all of these things, behind the scenes, there's all sorts of dramas and excitements and everything else. Um, so I didn't really get to sort of sit down and actually enjoy anything until sort of late afternoon. But um, it was um, it was really well received, well attended, and um, I think everyone had a had a good laugh. So it was good you, from that point. Do you know numbers? How many uh, visitors you got? I think we'd had about six thousand unique visitors. That's that's impressive. I mean, it's it's an innovation that I think circumstances brought about. None of us probably would have considered it, but I'm kind of wondering if this might raise some questions in agricultural societies and the like around the country. I think it might. I think I I don't think it can replace an agricultural show. I don't think uh, I don't think I would certainly encourage anything that takes people away from meeting up staring each other in the eye, having a chat um, and showing each other their livestock, their cakes, their whatever else. Um, but I think it's certainly opened opportunities for people to look at. So you don't think uh, that, you know, the societies that put the shows together should really be worried then? No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I, I think there's, there's opportunity to be had. I think um, if you are 
worried about the threat of technology, I think um, uh, I think you're probably in the wrong job. What are you doing it for, really, apart from uh, the, the fun of it and the, the, the social side and all the rest of it, was to raise some money, wasn't it? And yeah. any idea yeah. how much you ended up with? Uh, we've raised £16,000 so far, which, plus gift aid, is, is thick end of £18,000. Um, funnily enough, fundraising wasn't actually very top on the list of priorities when we first started thinking about this it was quite long a long way down the line that we thought actually there's an opportunity to raise a few quid at the same time um so it wasn't set up in such a way as to make the most out of um extracting people's money um and certainly i think we could have raised more but you know the priority really was about um everyone having a bit of fun and getting people together and giving trade to um a place but also i didn't want to we didn't want to price anyone out of the market you know there's people that are struggling at the moment and we didn't want them to sort of feel that they couldn't come along because they couldn't afford whatever price we put on having a trade stand for example hence why we just asked for a donation um and i think i, I still think that's the right thing to do absolutely i mean it's a, it's a fantastic figure so well done you well done everybody who's contributed to it where's the money going to go to david uh the money is going to be split evenly between five charities which is um rab um, the RSAB, um, Yana, the DPJ Foundation, and the Farm Community Network. Is there anything left to look at on the website, or is it like most shows, by Monday it looks like nothing's happened on the site and, and everything's disappeared? Virtually everything's still there. Um, we've got um, all of the content still live. Um, I've spoken to most of the hosts today um, who are generally happy for everything to stay up there, so... Most of the site's live, most of the content's there. Unfortunately, the disco's, um, disco's been packed up for now, but um, who knows where we'll take it next. And any plans for anything similar coming up? Well, we, as I think I've said before, um, Innovation for Agriculture, who um, who got in touch fairly early on and, and backed us and really got the web platform going, um, I think would like to look at something longer term. Um, and I think there's lots of opportunities that can be had um, for this sort of show or different shows or, or also using the platform for other things. So I think there's lots of opportunities, um, whether it'll quite have the same impact in different years when we're not in lockdown, um, I don't know. But actually, I think I, I think we have to move with the times. And actually, I think the show's shown that the agricultural industry can move with the times and, um, and, and, and can be up there as, as much as any other industry in the tech yeah, absolutely. Maybe that there's an opportunity for the two to sit side by side. Um, you know, you're absolutely right that you don't want to take away from the face to face contact. And a lot of friendships are made and, and maintained through these shows. But maybe there's some technology and some online stuff that can sit alongside it. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I you know, this this is all set up to honour the shows and to, to bring a bit of the fun that was being missed out um, upon through them being cancelled and you know i'd never ever want to compete with those um and i i I think if anything it probably promotes them more than anything and makes them realize how important the show is so i think there's um i think there is opportunity for them to run alongside um this is a very different thing and i think the the format's very different the experience is very different but it just it just gives a bit of a nod to the shows and I think makes people realise what they've, what they've missed out on this year. That's David Hill, the man behind the greatest online agricultural show with some help, a lot of help, from Innovation for Agriculture. 
Another mostly dry week again. How's that affecting the crops? Sean Sparling's been walking the fields. Morning, Sean. Yeah, morning, Steve. Well, another warm, dry week, don't we? We soon need some more rain. That 12.5 mil or so that we had last week, pretty much been and gone now. And with the heat that we saw through the middle part of this week and the, the warming winds, I think we're getting a little bit desperate out here now. But we have to be very, very careful what we wish for in this job. If we all go back and remember a year ago, the end of May, when we were all praying for rain and then we all know what happened in June. So crop-wise then, wheat is rushing through those growth stages. Philocrom, we've talked about this before, it's all to do with temperature this time of year. So when you get a six-inch tall plant, at growth stage 30, 31, even 32, you realise things are moving within the plant and you cannot just assume that it looks small, therefore it's backward. Calendar date agronomy is an absolute waste of time. It always is, it is every year, but it's even more wrong this year. When you've got growth stage 30 or even not quite growth stage 30 at the 10th of May, you realise that you must go by growth stage and throw that calendar away. Um, Dry doesn't mean a low disease year either. And that's an important thing. There's a lot of people out there on social media saying, oh, it's dry, it's a low disease year. You know, we've talked about it before. Kids with knits, their heads touching, you get windy days on a dry day in a field, heavy dews overnight. That's enough to spread septoria, yellow rust and other things around within that canopy. So remember, if you've got chlorthalonil in the shed, that must be used up by the 20th of May. Take significant care with your plant growth regulators. There's a lot of stress out there on these crops. So don't go loading the plant growth regs on. We saw a lot of issues last year on some farms where they were combining high doses of chlormaquat chloride with tranexapac ethyl and then later on with ethophon. So just be very, very careful out there and choose the herbicides to fit what's in the field when you're spraying these cereal crops, not what you assume is out there in the field. There are very few cleavers, for example, at the moment. So it'd be a waste of time putting fluoroxyper on out there in the field. Winter barley, Orns are out on some of these more forward crops, so therefore T2 is upon us. And as we look at all of those cereals, the winter cereals, the spring cereals are like that. Little drop of rain last week has started to bring on a few wild oats. The black grass is germinating, the rye grass is now coming through. So patch spray where applicable, but just wait because I don't think you've got them all through at the moment. Certainly not on my patch. Spring wheat, spring barley, growth stage 30, 31, widely out there on the February drilled crops. But plenty of crops well behind that. So again, Philocron, cut them open. Don't just assume that because it's the 10th of May, you should be out there doing this, that or the other. Cut the plant open and deal with the plant that's in front of you, not with the plant that you think should be there because of the calendar date aphids waste of time treating them now in spring cereals pretty much is most of the time in spring cereals if you're trying to control BYDV but the right time to have applied insecticides was in February if they were there in quantity and you could find them easily and they were the virus vector type of aphids the bird cherry oak the grain aphid the rose grain aphid hanging on for grim death in the wind and I was finding some of those in the absence of any predators then that is the only time to go and do it now that these fields are filling up with ladybirds and hoverflies lacewings 
spiders, little parasitic wasps. It's absolutely the wrong thing to do to go and put an insecticide out there in the field. Let the predators sort them out and protect those predators at all costs. Peas and beans growing away now from the pea and bean weevil damage in the main. Um, we're not getting very good results this year from pyrethroids on pea and bean weevil. So, you know, you pay your money, you take your choice. But I think let the predators deal with that problem now and hope that the peas and beans grow away from them quickly enough. Um, remember, you cannot use clethodim, Centurion Max, in peas or beans. And watch the timings for these others because um, herbicides in general in peas and beans, you have to be very careful. Broadleaf weeds in particular, there are cutoff timings. Once you get the buds being formed, you don't want to be going in there because you can cause significant damage to the flowers. Um, sugar beet then, Mises persicae. Remember, one wingless nymph per four plants is your threshold. Now, up until Tuesday, I'd seen the odd one on the edges of fields. You could find them in sheltered areas of field, but you could find nothing else. Wednesday afternoon up on Lincoln Heath, I could find them on the edges of field, but I couldn't find them in the middle of the field. By Thursday, the further west I got, out towards Newark, I could find significant levels out there. So if you're finding threshold reached and exceeded, and you're kneeling down in a field and every plant leaf you turn over, you can find wingless nymphs, then you need to think about about dealing with that. Since we've lost the neonicotinoids, all we really have are either Biscaya, Insist or Topeki out there for these uh, pests. They last two or three weeks, but you need to make sure it's the right thing to do. You don't want to start a programme just for the sake of doing it, just because your neighbours are doing it. If you're finding them, treat them. And remember that something like Biscaya, which bizarrely we're losing um, over the course of the next 12 months or so, has a very good environmental profile as far as beneficials go. Very kind to ladybirds and hoverflies so probably start with the biscaya and then see how you get on from there but um, it, always pick the right insecticide which is good for the beneficials out there um, so 21 degrees was common this week we saw up to 24 degrees Thursday Friday that's bad for spraying sugar beet you don't want to be putting herbicides on because not only do they not work there's a risk of crop damage frost you don't want to be anywhere near sugar beet when there's a frost about with any herbicide very tender young emerging plants and still a lot of these fields not yet through the ground so weed control bit of a challenge this year but always remember never ever use an air induction nozzle on sugar beet you want a fine quality o3 spray so small drops absolutely fine that's what you want a fine small drop spray don't use air induction so the message of the week assume nothing cut these plants open and throw away that calendar let's see what the next seven days bring Sean Sparling, Agronomy Services, back next week at the same time on the Farming Programme. In a moment, we've got an update on the markets from Kit Dickinson at Openfield, and we'll get an answer to the question, vertical farming, threat or opportunity? The Week in Agriculture. This is the Farming Programme with Steve Orchard. Vertical farming, opportunity or threat? What is it? How does it work? Is it a good thing or does it spell the end for traditional farming? Here to answer those questions is Life Sciences Analyst Dr Michael Dent. Michael, before we get into the nitty gritty, tell us a bit about what you do and how the report you've recently put together came about. I am a Life Sciences Analyst at IDTechX, which is a uh, market intelligence and consultancy company based over in Cambridge. So we carry out research into different emerging technology areas that we think are particularly exciting with the aim of trying to figure out what's really going on there. So cutting through all the hype and just figuring out what the reality of the situation is in terms of both scientific technology and the market that's out there. 
basically we heard a lot of buzz around vertical farming and there's been quite a few people in the media saying that it could revolutionize our food system and so we set out to try and find a bit more out a bit more about it and whether it's really this wonderful thing that some people are making it out to be um, so that then led to my recent report, uh, Vertical Farming 2020 to 2030, where I analyse the industry and just make some predictions about how it's going to look over the next decade. And what exactly is vertical farming? At its simplest, vertical farming is using technology to grow crops indoors uh, at an increased efficiency. Um, so basically, it's all centred around the idea that you can grow crops far more efficiently in a completely controlled environment. So, for example, by using LED lighting tailored to the exact spectrum that the crop needs for photosynthesis or using, say, a hydroponic growing system based on the exact nutrient requirements that the crop needs. Uh, and then because you're growing in this completely controlled environment, you can then grow the crops almost anywhere. Um, so, for example, right next to, say, a big city. And if you, say, grew these crops in a big city next to big urban population centres, you could then theoretically reduce the distance that crops need to travel to reach consumers. And does it work with all crops? Practically, almost all vertical farms are growing beefy greens at the moment. Um, some grow tomatoes, but mostly just leafy greens and herbs. And the reason for that is that vertical farms are expensive to run. Uh, as you can imagine, keeping LEDs and climate control and so on on all the time is extremely has extremely high power costs and so vertical farms typically focus on crops where you can grow them as quickly as possible and eat all of the crop so you aren't throwing away any biomass so for things like uh, wheat or soy or rice where you're only eating a small fraction of the final plant uh, it's quite difficult to justify that economically whereas for say a lettuce you can grow that and you can eat the entire thing which means it's a, a better crop to grow in terms of vertical farming. How is quality and quantity affected? In terms of quantity it's much higher um, because you can grow 365 days a year and you have precise control over nutrient supply to the crops you can end up um, growing it a lot faster and more efficiently than you can using a field. So a lot of the companies claim that you that their farms are, say, two to three hundred times more uh, efficient than the same space of land. Um, it's a slight fudge on the numbers because they're stacking growing trays up um, in vertical layers. So they're saying that, say, for one one foot of a one square foot of vertical farm, you're getting the equivalent of two to three hundred square feet of agriculture. In terms of quality, again, theoretically, if you understand the crop exactly, you can get the quality much better. Because if you say know the exact light spectrum that the crop needs and the exact nutrient profile it needs, you can create quite a lot of variation in the crop and get it to be exactly how you want it to be if you understand those parameters. There seem to be many advantages to vertical farming. What are the downsides? The main downside yeah, to vertical farming, and, and, and interestingly, um, a, lot of a lot of vertical farming companies have gone out of business. Um, so the main downside is power, and vertical farming is extremely expensive because you have to run advanced lighting systems, advanced climate control systems, and so on, basically 24-7. And by using LEDs to power to illuminate your crops, you're essentially replacing the sun, which is effectively a free resource. Um, now, technology is getting better, and LED costs are, are, have been plummeting over the last 
15-20 years or so. So this isn't necessarily always going to be the case, but at the moment vertically farmed produce is quite expensive. And so another problem which a lot of vertical farming companies don't necessarily foresee is that um, crop planting and harvesting is quite labour intensive. And when you're trying to do that in a small enclosed factory or a shipping container, the labour costs uh, and organisational difficulties can be quite high. And these are these are some problems which have uh, which caused the first generations of vertical farming companies to really struggle. And at the moment, companies are really trying to overcome these. Okay, so running costs are high. What about the initial investment? Well, this is one of the interesting trade-offs in the vertical farm, because there, there is definitely a trade-off between initial investment and ease of operation and operating costs down the line. Um, so, for example, if you invest in expensive um, heating, ventilation and air conditioning systems or invest quite heavily in, say, automation, you can make your operating costs a lot lower down the line. However, this is very expensive and you end up with a quite an uncomfortable trade-off between high investment now versus easy running later. So, to answer your question, yes, it is quite expensive <laughs> farm, and it varies enormously depending on how complicated you want to make it. It doesn't sound like the kind of situation where perhaps if one of our farmers who's got a spare building could put a few lights and shelves up, plant some seeds and off you go. That might sound a little bit facetious, but surely it's got to be done properly. Uh, yes and no. Um, there's an interesting company in Bristol uh, called, uh, with, with, with the brilliant pun of a name, Let Us Grow. And they make vertical farming hardware, which they specifically sell to farmers. Uh, well, the farmers are their main, are their main target market, uh, but who are trying to set up something with any additional space that they might have uh, as a separate, more reliable revenue stream. So there are a number of caveats to that, but theoretically, it doesn't have to be expensive to set up, but it might be limited in terms of the size or, say, the difficulties further on down the lines. And you mentioned that some companies in the US who started vertical farming early have struggled and some have actually gone out of business. Now that lessons have been learnt, do you think it's going to take off in the UK? I think one of the things that's important is expectation management. So... Is vertical farming likely to revolutionise foods in the world? Well, probably not for the next 10 years or so. Um, is it a good way of producing high quality, high quality premium fresh crops? Well, yes, it is quite good in that context. And if you look at, um, say, some of the companies that are growing in the UK at the moment, um, so growing underground in London, for example, who operate an indoor farm out of an old air aid shelter in the Clapham Common, and now they're starting to establish themselves selling fresh produce in um, shops like Marks and Spencer's, Waitrose, and so on. And um, Jones Food Company, who are um, <clears throat> partnering with Ocado, trying to install vertical farms in all of Ocado's distribution centres. And if you think about this in terms of, say, providing high-quality fresh produce within this market, which is still a big market, then it's got quite a bright future. Is vertical farming a threat to the conventional farmer? Theoretically, vertical farming and conventional farming are actually quite complementary to each other. There are certain certain crops that vertical farming is unlikely to ever grow, and there are certain times when traditional farmers could benefit from vertical farming, say, as a way of providing them an additional revenue stream throughout the entire year. And plus, there's also the additional thing that growing crops is, well, it's hard, and plants are quite complicated living beings. And one of the things that the vertical farming industry could really benefit from is expertise in exactly how to grow crops rather than treating it sort of like 
a manufacturing line or so on. And if a farmer listening to this is interested in knowing more or speaking to someone to get more information, where could they go? I think um, the company I mentioned previously, uh, Let Us Grow in Bristol, uh, work work a lot with farmers as well as some of the other smaller some of the other smaller UK-based startups who are, who are developing vertical farming hardware. There's also the company, uh, the, the um, German company Infarm, who supply modular vertical farms to customers, uh, who then, and then Infarm then operate the farms and the customers get to sell the, the crops that come out of that. Um, so there's, there's an Infarm set up in a few Marks and Spencers in London now, I believe. And where could we go to get hold of a copy of your report, Michael? Uh, they would go on to idtechx.com forward slash third farm where they can find um, some information about it some freely available sample slides and also the option to buy the report as well michael thank you so much for fascinating insight into vertical farming to wrap up would you just sum up where we're at just now with this vertical farming is still in its quite early stages in the west although it's quite big in the far east at the moment um and that's it can be a success, but what's needed is a balanced understanding of it. So is it gonna is it gonna revolutionize the food system and feed people and put all the farmers out of business? No, it's not. I mean, maybe in 40, 50 years time, who knows? But right now it could be a really good way of providing high quality, fresh produce. You know, things like lettuce, tomatoes and vegetables and so on. And if the world can man- and the wider community can manage its, manage its expectations and focus on vertical farming in this context. It could be a success. Michael Dent, technology analyst at ID Tech X. Their website for more information is idtechx.com. That's idtechex.com. If you have any opinions or comments on that, do get in touch via the website or tweet at Farming Show. To the markets then, Kit Dickinson on the line with the weekly report. Morning, Kit. Good morning, Steve. This week has been a much quieter week on the wheat market compared to the three weeks before. London Liffey has made small gains across old crop and new crop, but not recovered the losses we saw from last week. Currency will continue to play its part, as it always does, but where will the next big market mover be? France and the UK are still in need of, some, of rain in some areas more than others. I have heard different reports over the county as to the volume of rain that has been recorded last week, anything from 0mm up to 18mm. Even areas with higher rainfall are now showing signs of needing more, and if we don't get this, it could start to influence the market. Another point to consider is how big will the UK wheat crop be? The Lincolnshire area has been one of the worst affected by poor weather for the autumn drilling period, so when a 10 million tonne crop has been forecast for the UK, it doesn't really seem realistic but only time will tell. This, combined with a potential 3 million tonne carryover from old crop, would leave us with a 1 million tonne short of our UK 4 million tonne average. The net effect being our prices will then move to import parity. So moving on to all-seed rape. All-seed rape started the week in the opposite direction to wheat, sliding 3 euros on the motif. The US Chinese story is doing nothing for beans, and the pace of planting with next year's crops just means that beans are already adding to the large stocks. Cheaper beans normally means cheaper all-seed rape. I'm struggling to see the positive news on old crop all-seed rape from here, but I can see an argument to store over and carry into new crop if you have the space and the cash flow to do so. Barley. There are five main points to note on barley this week. 
The UK malting barley requirement currently being estimated down by 25 to 30 percent for harvest 2020. Heineken and Carlsberg are expecting sales to be down by 10 percent from last year's numbers as we stand. Lager being less affected than real ales and craft beer is the current thinking. French crop ratings get worse despite the recent rain, which needs monitoring over the coming weeks. No bids currently on new crop boats and business into Spain, although we have had some reasonable bigger export numbers coming through. However, the last offer in terms of global values, the UK were competitive on big boats, which would indicate something better for the post-harvest barley market. Beans, there is little news to report on beans in the market at the moment, old crop prices being very few and far between. This is mainly on the back of export demand slipping away and the last cargoes are set to leave in May. Domestic consumers have cover in the further forward. There has been some farm safe beans for autumn drilling, so keep an eye out for those last few tons of beans in the back of the shed coming to the market. Moving on to prices this week, feed wheat for May is 143 to 145. August, a nice carry to 154 to 156. November, 158 to 160. February, 161 to 163. And May, 21, 164 to 166. Milling premiums are still currently in the region of 25 to 27 pounds. Oilseed rate for May, 299 to 301. August, limited carry, 302 to 304. November, 312 to 314. February, 315 to 317. And May 21, 318, just reaching the all-important 320. Feed barley for May is 118 to 120. August, 113 to 115, with better carry going forward to November at 122 to 124. February, 125 to 127. And May 21, 128 to 130. There are currently still no malting premiums available. If on the off chance you do have beans left on the farm for specific prices, please get in contact with your Open Field Farm Business Manager. That's Kit Dickinson from Open Field back same time next week on The Farming Programme. The Farming Programme. Five-day forecast. After a warm few days, the weather changes from today, moving from southerly warmth to air and weather coming in from the polar region, becoming cold and windy with some strong gusts today and temperatures down to about half what they were at the end of last week. Eight or nine Celsius the high today, with an air frost distinctly possible overnight. Winds from the north, moderate but gusting up to 35 miles per hour later this morning. High pressures on the way from late Monday for the rest of the week. Highs tomorrow of 10 Celsius with northerly winds of between 15 and 20 miles per hour. Very little rain, indeed hardly any rain until we get a few showers, possibly on Thursday and Friday. The wind stays mostly north to northeast all week, easing to be light for the middle of the week before picking up again on Friday. Highs around 9 Celsius, but a little warmer on Thursday and overnight lows down to one or two under clear skies. So frosts not finished yet. That's it from the farming programme for this week. Don't forget you can catch up with us via the website, the app, and on Twitter, at Farming Show. I really would love to hear from you with your farming news and stories. And, of course, the podcast goes live in a few seconds. I'm Steve Orchard. Have a good farming week and stay safe and positive.